Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. We are back on track with our X-Men reviews. Uh, last chance, or last time uh, you had a chance to enjoy our interview with Sandy Plunkett. We stepped into the Fantastic Four world for a minute, but we are thrilled to be back in uh, the X-Men run today with X-Men number 55. Uh, the only thing you need to remember in this, uh, uh, if you're long-term listeners, uh, you already know what's going on in the books, but Professor X is still pretending to be dead. We just learned Cyclops has a brother named Alex, and uh, Alex is a mutant, it's hinted. We'll see more about that in today's issue. But he's also been uh, captured by Ahmed Abdul, the living pharaoh and the cult that serves him. And uh, Cyclops has been accused of murder, which is a plot that's very quickly dropped in today's issue. So today we're going to be covering X-Men 55, which is called The Living Pharaoh. Uh, It is uh, by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth and Don Heck in their last appearance on this book uh, as as the main artists. Uh, So we get Neil Adams taking over next issue, which is very exciting. Uh, Vince Coletta's on inks, uh, Gene Izzo on letters, and Stanley on edits. Uh, But before we get to that, we are thrilled to welcome two of my favorite returning co-hosts, Anas Abdullah and Seth Martel. And uh, I am thrilled to welcome uh, a writer whose work I have enjoyed for a very long time, uh, Mr. Sam Humphreys. Hi, Sam. How are you? What's up? I'm delighted. How y'all doing? We're great. I uh, I just went to FlameCon this weekend. We're recording this on the day that I return. Uh, but I had this amazing opportunity. I built a lot of friends through this podcast. And I had a chance to meet many of them in person, uh, which was really, really wonderful. Very cool. Who'd you hang with? Oh, goodness. There was a long list. But, uh, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm so popular. I couldn't even begin. <laughs> to I mean, uh, you know, I got to, with. I got to hang of all places. <laughs> I got to hang with Steve Orlando and Anthony Oliveira and Josh Trujillo oh. and Terry Blass. And I could go on. But it was uh, it was oh, really great. lovely to see I, so many friends. Steve's a sweetheart. I love Steve. Uh, and Terry is a fantastic artist. I love his stuff. We're uh, we're good friends. Uh, it was wonderful. So uh, as as we begin today, Sam, let me have you. Uh, we'll go in the order of Sam and Austin and Seth. Let's have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns and where we might know you from. Sure, uh, Sam Humphreys, he him. I am a writer of comic books, novels. Uh, I am also uh, an on air host. Um, I think fans of this podcast might know me best because I did a run of Uncanny X-Force. That was my most uh, mutant-adjacent work. Um, I, you know, in addition to all the work I did starting at eight years old, being obsessed with the X-Men, that's a lifelong project, I think, that you could say. Um, but uh, I've, I've also done uh, uh, other runs at Marvel. I did Legendary Star-Lord at DC. I did runs on Green Lanterns, a uh, real quick run on Nightwing. Uh, I just did about two and a half years on Harley Quinn. Um, and then, you know, my weirder, like, creator-owned projects, like Citizen Jack and Jonesy and Blackbird, Goliath Girls. You know, I could go on, just like you in The City That Never Sleeps. There's just there's too many to mention. I couldn't, uh, no, no, I couldn't possibly get into all the people I hung out with. No. <laughs> That that was uh that was more from the comprehensivity of it, not the oh I'm so important. <laughs> I get it. You don't want to leave people out, but we all know that like the people, the snoozers, like they got they got left out of that list. <laughs> a minute ago, a, a minute ago, Anas asked me like, who drew this picture that's new on your wall? And I was like, I know who it is, but my brain is not functioning at such a capacity to recall. <laughs> Fair enough. We've we've all been there. 
Um, uh, let's go to Anas next. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Anas. Uh, I'm a writer and artist from Syria. You might know me from the Geekable podcast or some of my indie comic book work. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. This is my third time back on the Grey Malkin Lane, and it's always such a fun time and a pleasure to be on here. So thank you, Chad, for having me again. I'm so thrilled to have you. We had a NAS last with us uh, with uh, Dan Jurgens on it. We had a great time. It's it's wonderful oh, to have yeah. you here. Uh, and then over to Seth. Hi, my name is Seth Martell. I'm a writer and artist from Hudson Valley, New York. Um, you might know um, he, him uh, pronouns. You might know me from all the merch that I've been doing for the Great Malcolm Lane podcast. And uh, also just was on the Patreon episode for Fred Duncan, which was just recorded is it released chad yeah that's out right uh, yep yep it's out cool so people can go check that out and listen about that random government agent uh that's about it yeah bunch of been in a bunch of anthologies have some stuff coming up next year but uh seth is one of my very favorite people we've had a chance to collaborate a lot and i just got to meet seth in person in new york as well we uh we oh. were one of the people he left off of the list that's i it. was gonna say this seems like the first <laughs> mention of this hangout whereas you went on for hours it's all right i'm used to it i would just Bring like to remind in trouble all the people he didn't mention i would just like to remind email. you all i have full editorial control i can take all of this out of <laughs> <laughs> you're you're not gonna take it out you're just gonna edit in like a very comprehensive you just like going down each person and all the time you spent together we're already we're on minute 46 after you do the edit uh you know the people i hung out most with are are seth i also got a, a, a lovely opportunity to really spend a lot of time with uh demanda martini the drag queen uh who has been on the oh my god times um Wonderful. And uh, I got to meet a lot of new friends. I spent some time with uh, Nadia Shamas and with Danny Lore and with Amy Reader. And uh, I think great, all of them are coming on the people. pod. Yeah, it was a great time. I had a really good time. Um, okay, good. Sam, I want to start uh, our podcast, as always, by kind of just getting to know you. I uh, sure. Every time I reach out to a writer that I've admired and I hear back from there, there's a part of me that's like, yay. Like, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to, uh, to be corresponding with you at all. But uh uh, it's been just a, a blast to kind of put this together with you over the last couple months. Yeah, we've prepared this. Um, I had a chance to I have not read any of your DC work. Uh, and I don't mean to be a model. <laughs> I'll just be logging off right now. That's cool. That's okay. <laughs> I have Sam. I have Sam. Don't go anywhere. Oh, great. Well, Nas and I are going to sidebar over here. You know, you <laughs> Seth, well, you to be determined, but Chad can see himself out of his own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for our listeners who cannot see Sam, he has the most gorgeous, luxurious hair. Oh, I'm so impressed. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I did have a chance to rewrite all uh, or reread all of your Marvel work. Now, I uh, I don't Please know. Please rewrite it if you want. Like, might as well. <laughs> as long as you're timing back into it. <laughs> I'm going I'm to trip on my tongue so many times today. <laughs> Um, can't wait to call you out each time this is I, I, you, I you i do that to other people all the time i am open for it uh it is open season Great. um uh now i don't know if you knew some i worked on the marvel handbooks for a long time uh oh and, my god uh and i had a chance to read a lot of your work back when i was working on the books so this is uh this yeah. is my first time reading a lot of your stuff since i had been cool. uh, back in those days we're not going to cover everything Sam has done at Marvel, but uh, for those of you who have been reading uh, Marvel for a long time, Sam did uh, the really fun series Avengers AI, uh, the legendary Star-Lord, as well as kind of the alternate reality uh, about Star-Lord and Kitty Pride back when they were dating, but then Doom took over the planet and there was a 
bunch of craziness. Uh, those are among the things we won't cover today, but uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of fun content involved there. Um, and uh, I just got some questions that I'm going to toss at you. I know Anasa's prepared some from the DC side. Uh, let me uh, let me move, uh, let me hear a little bit about your entertainment background. I know you uh, you've had a, a pretty long career in the industry. Now, tell us where you got your start. Uh, and uh, maybe some of your favorite things across uh, across the years that you've been working on? Like the, my favorite projects? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this is like you and all your New York homies. Like I can't, I can't <laughs> play favorites. Somebody's going to be heartbroken out there. Um, uh, uh, things that you've worked on uh, primarily. I, I, well, you know, I, God, it's, it is weird for you to hear that I've been in the business for a long time because I still feel like maybe not a rookie, but maybe like a sophomore and like, sophomore going into junior year sometimes but I mean I guess it has been like 10 years um and I'm bitter enough to have been in the industry a long time so <laughs> uh that fits but I got my start uh by self-publishing actually um I was trying to break into comics the you know it's like talking like 2008-ish, the banks are failing, the recession's hitting, I get laid off from my job in like 2009, and I'm like this, I'm never gonna have like a better opportunity to try and break in as a writer. Like I'm not married, I don't have a mortgage, I don't have kids. Um, it's still not gonna be easy, but this is probably gonna be the moment that I will look back on on my proverbial deathbed, uh, and I'm gonna look back on it one way or another. Um, and what's going to be, you know, the, the important thing for me when I look back on it, it's not whether or not I became the greatest comic book writer in the world. What's going to be important to me is like, did I give it a shot? Did, sure. did I, did I give it like an honest and true shot? So that's when I sort of, um, started, uh, trying to break in. Um, and I had like two short stories published in my first year. Um, and I was kind of like looking, it was at the beginning of, my second year, just before my second year, just because of the production cycles of comics, I was like, if things continue the way they are, or just the way that things are right now, I'm probably not going to have a comic out in my second year. And, you know, I'm going to lose just the, the tiny, teeniest morsel of momentum I had built up with these two short stories. And, you know, I, I, I was going to have to focus less on comics and more on actually making money. You know, it's just like, I felt like the clock was ticking and kind of going back to like, did I really give it like a full shot? Did I really give it like, yeah, I try everything I could and I realized that I hadn't and what I needed to do was self-published comics. Um, and I had, you know, I was a teenager in the nineties when self-publishing and comics was like this movement. It was almost like a, a movement of liberation for comic book creators and you had people like, um, you know, David Lapham and uh, Jeff Smith with Bone and, uh, Steve Bissett, uh, you know, I, all these creators who started off in self-publishing um, and they, you know, to various extents, these guys are my heroes. Like I still love David Lapham and, and Straight Bullets and, you know, look up to what they did in the 90s. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta bring the spirit of the 90s. I gotta, I gotta make the spirit of the 90s alive right now. So uh, I, I looked through like the you know, like the 10 pitches that I had that I had shopped around to every publisher in the business and picked out two. I, I was like, the rest of these can eat shit. But these two, I feel like have merit, but they also, I felt like 
like nobody would ever make these comics unless I make them, right? Like we see comics or movies or TV shows all the time where it just seems like they spun the wheel of high high concept, you know? And like, well, that this person didn't make that show. Like eventually this idea was gonna get done. But these two I felt like were so unique that at, at least, you know, self-publishing, like it takes so many favors and so much time and money. And if I was gonna like put all these resources into it, I, I wanted to do something that was like very unique and and hopefully like expressed where I come from creatively. So the first um, comic I self-published was a black and white one shot uh, called Our Love is Real. And it a sci-fi love story about a cop who fucks his dog. Yeah. Um, a cop who fucks his dog. <laughs> Anas, you okay over there? No, I'm just, I'm processing. Okay, that's a, no. Like, is it bestiality because, you know, cops are pigs or is it, you know? <laughs> well, like I said, a sci-fi love story. Um, and I had very smart friends in the industry tell me not to do this for obvious reasons. But I thought Our Love is Real would like maybe get me some attention, but it was a second book, a book called Sacrifice, which was a six issue limited series and it was in color and it was like a more traditional like hero's journey, stranger to strange land, blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought Sacrifice would would get me work, um, but I remember uh, Our Love is Real being announced and I, I only announced it like three days before it came out because I could only handle so many copies. I called it a limited edition of 300, but the truth was I really only had the money and the space for 300 copies. Uh, but it blew up real fast. There were copies uh, on eBay going for $150 before it even came out. Um, and uh, it, it got me a ton of attention. And I sent um, copies to every editor I knew, including Steve Wacker at Marvel. Uh, and he hit me up like a month later and he said, I, I read Our Love is Real. Congratulations. What's your phone number? And 20 minutes later, I got a phone call from uh, Axel Alonso. At Marvel Comics, and he said, "I read your comic. It's one of my favorite comics of the year, and I I want to know if you're ready to get in the mix at Marvel." And I said, "Before I before I answer that, I need to make sure you actually read this comic and you know what you're getting into." <laughs> and he laughed and he said, "Yes, yes, I do." And so um, that's that's how I broke in. And you know, we kind of uh, bided our time and waited for the right opportunities to come along. And but I think. By January of that next year, I got the opportunity to jump on Ultimates. Ultimates. Um, and from there, I was a full-time comic book writer. Well, and on Ultimates, uh, you told the infamous Captain America as President story, which is yeah. amazing. And there's so much. I, I could interview you for two hours about everything <laughs> non-X-Men related. Uh, I, uh, I also would love to pick your brain about the work you did with uh, Star-Lord, which was so much fun oh, yeah. during kind of the that height of his popularity. Um, mm -hmm. But to keep this a little <laughs> bit more focused, uh, we, we do a lot of uh, interviews on this pod with creators kind of across the industry. Uh, and there was there was kind of a shift, it seems, uh, based on my perspective, at least, uh, Sam, where instead of I mean, getting into the business has always been a little bit about who, you know, uh, but uh, it, it seems like over the last several years, it's what have you done? Uh, 
and who do you know? So if you have published right. books, if you have if you have had some reviews and people are talking nowadays, that means how many followers do you have on Twitter or Instagram? That's what starts to draw people's attention a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's an interesting thing. But uh, I worked for Marvel and pitched books to Marvel, and they're like, nope, you got to go make it somewhere else first. Then uh, then yeah. we'll talk. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. it's always about that timing, and then they give you the small project, see how you do. If it does mm -hmm. well, let's try something new, and then let's try something bigger. And there's a yeah. there's kind of a building as you climb that ladder. Uh, it's it's uh, what was your experience like working? I mean, you've done a lot of work with DC and Marvel both, but what's sure. been your experience yeah, yeah. like working in the big two versus uh, indie comics? Well, I mean, there's a lot of the obvious differences, a lot of the legal differences, owning the the projects and you know to some extent being your old own boss um i think you know what you're saying about um breaking in and it's more about like what have you done i think that's definitely true for writers and that's because if you're a writer there's nothing you can show anybody except for a script and a comic book script is literally the most boring way to experience a fucking comic <laughs> and i say that as somebody who has written a couple hundred scripts like it it just sucks if you're an artist you can make a portfolio and you can show it to an editor at a con or you can email them and they can take a look and probably within five to 60 seconds they can know whether you're ready for more serious consideration you know like it's it's right off the bat because it's the artwork it's, it's visual and it's visceral and like if you're, you know, an art, if you're an editor of almost any level of experience, you can see, you can pick out the storytelling details right away. Do they know how to do this, 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 you know, does this page even make sense when I look at it? Um, so yeah, as a writer, like they, they need to know that, um, that you can write a, you know, good dialogue and tell a story with a beginning, middle and end and a character arc, and you can express character and exposition and story and all that kind of stuff. But they're not going to sit and read your script. So that's why for a lot of creators, the way in is to somehow one way or another, doesn't have to be the way I did it. There are a lot of ways to do it, but you got to get a, uh, one of your scripts made or drawn, at least drawn in letter. It doesn't have to be colored and it doesn't have to be printed on paper um, because that's the easiest way to see uh, if your writing can hold water. You know, the other thing about it that, you know, they don't necessarily talk about in the how to break into comics and Marvel way panel or whatever, is that um, if you, there's a lot of people out there who want to work in comics. And if you self-publish a comic or not even self-publish, but, but if you are a writer who has a, a story that has been drawn and lettered, you're automatically in the 95th, maybe even 99th percentile of all the people around you who just talk all day about yeah. wanting to make a comic. And the other thing about it is that, it's proof that you're not a total asshole. You might be a partial asshole, but you are at least partial enough that you could get this done by working with other people. Um, you know, I think they find out the true extent of how much an asshole you are when they start you on a um, smaller project, which which I did. I started on uh, John Carter, Gods of Mars, uh, drawn by um, Ramon Perez, colored by Jordi Belair, edited by Sana Amanat. Uh, just uh, an incredible, we've all gone to just incredible things. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, we just had a ball doing six issues together. Like, we had the greatest time. Like, we still give each other, like, shout outs and be like, remember that time we did a comic that, like, nobody cared about? 
but part of the reason is that nobody cared about it. And, you know, I could go on there as a new writer and I could fuck up and it wouldn't ruin my career because they didn't put me on like, I don't know, Wolverine right away. Um, and, you know, we, it was it, not enough people cared about it so that we could do all sorts of things. And if you look back on that, Ramon was doing incredible things with the layouts and Jordy was doing incredible things with the coloring. And I was barely keeping up. I'm doing an incredible <laughs> job of not ruining it. Uh, <laughs> um, we've, uh, we've interviewed a lot of creatives on this pod. In fact, all four of us have published books uh, in different ways. Seth, Seth is an artist I, I, and Austin and I both, yeah. uh, both write as well, but uh, not, not at the same level. Uh, I think it's this way in any field, though, right? If you're if you're making music out of your garage, you want to be noticed so you can be published. But then a company takes over, and suddenly you long for performing in your garage again, right? Like there's the that element sure. of freedom you have when you have your own creative control. But it's uh, it's part of the big game we play. Uh, um, let me turn it let me turn it over to Anas for a minute. I know Anas has some DC questions, yeah. and then I'm going to pick your brain on on Uncanny X Force and a few other. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we um, you know. Get into DC. Speaking of like self-publishing, I would say I'm about like a, in the first phase that you were at, which yeah. is like I just put out my first self-published comic book like back in February. Congratulations! And, yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> having to do work like five jobs, being like your own agent, promoter, marketer, everything just to get the word out there about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, having worked on my follow-up right now, which is like. I feel like is a much bigger project and I spent weeks sending applications and submissions and, you know, pitches. And it is, as you know, Chad said, it's a lot of who, you know, more so than what you've done. And I would have loved it if like the industry was at a stage where like your work would stand on its own for what it is rather than who you are, or what you've accomplished or how many followers you have. But unfortunately we're not there yet. And I feel like every time an industry or a creative industry gets into like this um, business, when, when it becomes a business, it has to like focus on that. So that's sadly unfortunate, but I'm still in it. I'm still making comics for the sake of loving the media Good. so much. Yes. Yeah. And I'm still not Good. discouraged yet. And that's gotta Good. be the motivation. You've gotta do it because you love it. You gotta love every project you work on. Otherwise it's not yeah. worth yeah. it. Like, or even just, because just I'm say so... real quick that like, th this is so that, you know, a lot of people like they just grind on their pitches and they just send them out. Making comics is a quality of life decision. It's a quality <laughs> of life improvement versus just like waiting for your phone to ring or reloading your Gmail all day or waiting for somebody else's permission to make a comic book. It is a quality of life decision. And at the end of the day, you have a comic. You made a comic. They'll put yeah. that in your obituary. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, you are a comic creator and that's an incredible thing. So you already know this, you've already self-published. This is for other people out there, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't really say much, but I've like, I got picked up finally, like after like months and months of uh, nail biting and refreshing my Gmail account every five seconds, finally my <laughs> my book did get picked up and it's later to release sometime next year, which is really exciting. It's gonna be my Very first cool. official published comic book. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah. Speaking like I, you know, what you said about like starting out really resonated with me because I'm literally living through that phase right now. You're doing it, bud. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot. But I wanted to ask you, like, in regards to your DC work, yeah. Uh, having done basically, like, you you really like well, while you did not create Jessica Cruz, you really brought her to the forefront in your Green Lanterns run. Mm -hmm. and that was like an iconic run, and really put her in a spotlight. How does it freaking feel to like see the level of success and fame she's gotten? Like she's a huge oh. character now. 
I love it. I mean, she's one of the characters who, like, I really, uh, not, like, what's the least weird way to put it, or at least, like, frou-frou creative way to say it, but, like, it's a character I really bonded with. It's a character that I feel like if I was to write her tomorrow, it would take 0.5 seconds to get back into that character. Like, I, I really felt um, and still feel a strong connection to her. So when I see, like, the heights that she's risen to, um, particularly like the super, uh, the DC superhero girls collection that's, yeah. that's aimed at like young girls. Like, I think that's incredible. I love that. Um, <clears throat> her animated appearances, uh, become friends with one of her voice actors, which is so cool. And to see like, you know, just to hear from, from her, the, the responses that she's gotten is amazing. Um, also the, the DC animated universe, or maybe it's not an animated universe, but an animated movie um justice league versus the fatal five yeah that's a that's a really cool one and that has some elements that were was taken from my run and um i know one of the writers from that you know which is really cool so uh, you know in addition to everything else like uh i we we sort of have this like informal group of people who have like done significant work with her we're just always like cheering her on uh <laughs> but it's a, it's amazing to see her you know, be such an inspiration to young girls or even just get them excited about stories and superheroes and hopefully comics, you know, um, that's, that's amazing and has nothing to do with me, really. It's just, it's just the appeal of the character. Um, so I love it. Bring it on. I feel more. like you've really made your mark in like the comic scene, just, you know, regardless of all, every, other, every other thing that you've done. I mean, I, I love your Blackbird uh, comic book. I love your indie stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's it's really great. So if you were like to come back and write anything again or you know expand on a project, would you choose just like a cruise or would you just go back into another world that you've created? Like you mean if I was to rewrite something? No, if you were to like, like do a continuation right now. Oh, oh, or or would I do something new? I mean, I do both. I can do both. You know what I mean? You, you don't have do to both. choose one or the it's other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh like gun to my head if I could do one or the other. I would like, I mean, if I, yeah, gun to my head, if it was like my last project, I'd probably do something <clears throat> creator owned because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's say, let's say I'm on my deathbed, let's say I get a horrible diagnosis and I can only do one comic. I'd probably do something that's really fucking weird. I'd probably do something that's so strange. I, I would feel no obligation to pay attention to anything that DC or Marvel <laughs> says, or literally anybody else. And to do Jessica Cruz again would be wonderful. And I would totally do it. I do it tomorrow. But um, to, you know, if, if I really could only pick one thing, it wouldn't be to work under the, the strictures of, of any publisher or yeah. any distribution system or any marketplace or any audience expectation, you know? It it just I'd probably just do some really weird shit, is what I'd do. That is uh, the perfect answer. <laughs> we we keep landing back in uh, in production. I've, I've I've done a graphic novel, a memoir, and a documentary, and all of them yeah. all of them just hiccup all through the production process. You uh you pitch and you hope and you <laughs> wait and you wait and then you send it out there and hope it gets good. Everything right? It's uh yeah. it's a rough process for all the creatives. We we hear that. Uh so uh. <laughs> I have to note really quickly, and I don't want to spend time on this. One of my least favorite things in all of X-Men continuity is that nonsense uh -huh. portal Brian Michael Bendis created called the Black Vortex. 
<laughs> uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Who created the Black Vortex? Did you create the Black Vortex? Who created the Black Vortex? Who? Brian Michael Hoomst? I don't think so. <laughs> I created the Black Vortex. I, uh, the... I, I, I thought it was a I'm sorry, were you saying one of the things you loved the most in X-Men? Is that what you said? Well, I have a question. I have a question <laughs> prepared for you. Uh, I, okay. I, I, you can hate it. It's all right. I'm That's operating fine. under the... I, I like the story. I just don't like the Vortex. Uh, I, I was operating under the assumption that Bendis mm -hmm. created the Vortex, but I was just going to say you launched the yep. issue that... You launched the first issue that uh, that had the Vortex in it. Uh, well, the, no, I, I created the Black Vortex because I think it first appeared in Legendary Star-Lord, but I also created the whole idea of the event. Um, and I was the showrunner of the event. So all, all that Black Vortex stuff. Um, so all the blame with me, falls on Zeus Ham. Uh, all the blame <laughs> from, for, from your favorite event comic of all time, Chad. I can tell you love it so much. Well, let me, get, let me get into that. So the reason I, I like the story told in the Black Vortex, the Black Vortex is a story told in, uh, it's a crossover between the time traveling X-Men. So we've covered this on the pod a little bit. The original X-Men are in the present or the, their future. Uh, they team up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Star-Lord and a few other people. And there's this big epic battle in space with super high stakes. And there's an artifact that if you look into it, will release giant cosmic crazy powers. And uh, it it created some really interesting versions of the teenage versions of the characters we're gonna read in the issue today, which is, uh, you know, Angel and Cyclops and Beast and Iceman and Marvel Girl. Uh, and then it went weird places after that. Marvel Girl got blown up in space and like rebuilt her own body. Angel got fire wings and then had to have them amputated and like, cause they had to go back and reset the timeline. So the reason I hated the story, not, not the story itself, the reason I hate the Vortex is the continuity guy in me that has to write the encyclopedia goes, okay, if he had fire <laughs> and then they chopped them off. What, <laughs> well, wait, did I don't, they chopped them off after the Black Vortex, right? Mm -hmm. so, okay, at, so see, throw it on my hands, not me. <laughs> at the end of the story, Teen Angel kept his fire wings until he didn't have them. So I don't, uh, I don't hate the story at all, but I was going to say, tell us about your involvement in the Black Vortex but you are the you are the creator well, I already, I already, yeah well i you know it was um a situation where um you know the the infamous marvel retreats back when they're held in new york they may be back to that again post-covid i don't know but um uh i was having dinner with uh brian michael bendis who comics or not is uh, one of my closest friends and he was like we should He's like, I'm writing the two X-Men books and Guardians of the Galaxy. And uh, our good friend Kelly Sue is writing um, Captain Marvel and you're writing Star-Lord. And our good friend Greg Rucka is writing, um, he was writing Cyclops at the time. Um, he's like, we should do an event. I was like, great, I'm in. He was like, well, I'm not going to do it. And I was like, fuck, I guess I got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we're all very like-minded creators and respected each other a lot and um just just had great connection as friends um but i you know the more i looked into it you know because uh uh star lord was dating kitty pride she'd really become one of the supporting characters in my book um so there was like a real like connection right there right off the bat uh and i love cosmic stories particularly the cosmic stories that contain that like the the mighty marvel moral dilemma kind of thing you yes. know 
It's like in the, the original Secret Wars where Reed Richards decides that the best thing to do for the greater good is to let Galactus eat the planet. Like that, that kind of shit, like I, I, I love. I loved it as a kid. I, like that kind of blew my mind. Um, so uh, I, I want to do that. And also we kind of just had, you know, when, you, when you're at a retreat, you start to think in like calendars and, and, and quarters, which, you know, like financial quarters even, which can feel like very mercenary, but that is like, you, you, you want to think about, you know, uh, you, you don't want to live your life a, a quarter mile at a time. You want to envision the whole race. Sure. You know, you, 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 you want to think about how can we as a line sustain excitement over the course of not just the next year, but the year and a half, two years, even three years sometimes. Uh, and, and how can we do that in a way with peaks and valleys, you know, events come up and, and bring characters together and the characters can go off and have their own development. But there was a conspicuous like hole in the schedule. And when working it out, they were like, can you do this in two and a half months? And I was like, hell yeah, I can. No problem. Like, what, 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 when are these issues shipping? Great. No problem. And I figured out the overall storyline and the major beats and how they would go from one to the other. I think we also, we had, we had an issue of guardians team up as well, which we could play with. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great, I will take those pages, uh, happily help the story move along. Um, and so it was like, I, you know, you wouldn't call it uh, a major event or, or the big event of the year. I don't remember what came before that, but uh, maybe original sin or something like that. Original sin, secret wars, they're just bigger. They're bigger in scope, bigger in number of characters, bigger in issues, page count, disruption, you know, like, so this was really contained. It was contained to like the X-Men books and the, and the cosmic books. Um, so, oh, wait, we had another one. Nova? We had an issue of Nova. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. it was a long time ago. And I think, uh, I, think ago. I think Captain Marvel was part of it for a minute too. Captain Marvel. Yeah. yeah. Kelly Sue was writing Captain Marvel. I forgot who was writing Nova. Was it Jerry? Was it Jerry Dugan? Uh, that's probably correct. This is the Sam Alexander Nova. I, I really enjoyed the pacing of this story. I thought it was well constructed <laughs> and well put together. And I liked the, I liked the Gara character a lot. Uh, and oh, anytime, yeah. anytime you're seeing your characters get cosmic upgrades, it's fantastic. When I say I hate it, it's just the, wait, how does this fit? Because they have to go back in time and now they're For dead. Sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, I to me, like the cosmic powers are cool and it's like, you know, very like, um exciting and you get to have like i think and uh, andrea sorrentino redesigned all their costumes which is cool and like um we we had a great lineup of artists who could do cosmic really really well um so like that's cool but what was really exciting to me was you don't just see a cosmic version of yourself you see a different version of your own personality you see a different part of yourself take dominance you you look in the mirror and you see something about yourself that you didn't know before that's to me was like the most interesting thing and yes there's a dark side to that and actually most of those transitions transformations were a little dark-sided but in the end like kitty learned something about herself that she didn't know which was like really amazing and beautiful part of her personality and really beneficial um <clears throat> so cosmic kitty was crazy i am now realizing as we're talking sam you missed a prime opportunity yeah. however because oh did i, star, did I? Star, well star lord is a space cop and cosmo the space dog was there you could have done our love is real <laughs> Marvel style. he's not a cop 
Did he become a cop later? I love that he that's wasn't a cop when that. I wrote him. He was not. He was a space fire. He was. He was well, not a cop when I wrote him. Nova is a space cop. So, oh, Still. Nova okay. and Cosmo. There we go. Well, Sam Alexander was a child. He's a kid. <laughs> <laughs> So that's where you draw the line. <laughs> Sam, what I was wondering about with all of that too is like you were like kind of permanently, you know, for like the foreseeable future in your world, like altering some characters that were brought in, like Angel. Like, was it like were there any editorial like mandates or like rules for that? Like, you just kind of had a carte blanche to like who you would affect in this, or like did you have to like really sit down and talk out like some long term planning with that too? Since like they chopped off his wings later, like like how long can you be like I'm? I want to change this guy. I'm gonna give him big fire wings. I mean, you, you know, one of the hallmarks of the success of an event, or at least one, one of the, one of the things that you want is you want to leave behind lasting repercussions. Sure. Um, every event that's, that's, you know, we're at, we're at the retreats and we're like, what do we get out of it? Like, if we're going to do all this, we're going to have all this coordination, we're going to disrupt all these books. Like, what are we going to get out of it long-term? Um, and the black vortex again was a really handy way to change characters without being like, I don't know, I, you know, uh, so it, the, 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 the black vortex, it was like there and it was like virtually any character we could have them continue uh, in their cosmic forms. Um, and I, it, there was some conversation with editorial about like, definitely don't do this because this guy's already appearing here, whatever. Um, but at a certain point, you can all you can do is change the characters and they got to go back to their own books so they got to go back to their older priorities and other um creators and editors will have to make that call whether or not uh angel keeps his his cosmic wings or or what have you um you know you kind of it's, it's like letting your your babies go up in the world um after after you write the end on your own event it's out of your hands i kind of wondered if it was like almost a given to you just to like artistically delineate between like the old and the new X-Men and some of them like just look so similar. I thought maybe like, oh, okay, this is a cool event. So I can just visually like separate them now since they're all existing in the world for, you know, for that amount of time. Yeah. That's an interesting way to think about it. I don't recall having a conversation like that, but it was a long time ago. It could have happened. Well, there's so many hands in the pot, right? Uh, uh, there's a, there are, and we were also really prepping for Secret Wars, which was the biggest event since like Age of Apocalypse. Um, and we had been prepping for that as long as I had been at Marvel, several retreats. Sure. So, <clears throat> and that, as you know, famously destroyed the whole Marvel universe. So I think I think maybe there were a lot of decisions coming out of Black Vortex, like, oh, this character can stay cosmic and this character can stay cosmic because we, we all do that we were on borrowed time, that everything was gonna change, everything was gonna die. So there may have been some decisions that were freewheeling that like once they got in the mix, like even pre-Secret Wars, they were like, oh shit, like I actually, I need this to not be this way anymore because of X, Y, Z or whatever. Um, yeah, I, a, Black Vortex was like the last gasp of the last event before Secret Wars. Yeah, our, there was a lot of crazy stuff happening too right at that time. Uh, we, we That's a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. I do want to talk to you. Every once in a while, uh, Marvel will seem to allow a lot of creative reign when it comes to the X-Men line. Uh, so we had uh, we had Rick Remender's legendary run on Uncanny X-Force, which we've talked some about on the podcast, particularly during the uh, Angel trial, where uh, which we had recently. 
that then launched into two new versions of X-Force. Uh, Cy Spurrier did Cable in X-Force, which is nuts and so much fun. And uh, Sam Humphreys did uh, the Uncanny X-Force. Now- I did, I did. I hate to correct you in your own podcast, but Cable in the X-Force was originally written by um, Hopeless. Oh, of course, Dennis Hopeless. My apologies. This Dennis is Hopeless. My- this yeah, is yeah. my plain brain like, at work uh, for right. all my listeners. I was in the mix at the time, so you're not far off. I think he was writing Legion soon around that era. Yeah, and didn't he do the X-Force after you? Didn't he like take probably, the merge new X-Force? Yeah. Probably. Yeah, my apologies. <laughs> I uh, I have notes and Apologize to Dennis, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I was most fascinated as a reader on, and I, I obviously have not met yeah. you until today, I was so stunned by your choice of members for your team, number one. Mm. And the threat that you chose to have them face, number two. And I felt like right. there's this giant sandbox. And the story that you chose was so fascinating to me. Uh, so we got we got a team where you got to pick up the reins with Psylocke and Storm and Bishop. Uh, Bishop had been through some hell. And then you added Puck and, and then you added Puck and Spiral to the mix. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your your selection of this team, uh, first of all. That was a lot of fun. That was a, a great fun collaboration between me and editor Nick Lowe. Like I just remember there was a, a brunch at San Diego Comic-Con where we were making ourselves each other, you know, die of laughter at, at some of the combinations, the character combinations we were coming up with. And on the phone, I remember too. Um, and it was, it was really a mix. Um, I, you know, between like things that they wanted to see or things that they, and they, they wanted Psylocke to be sort of the, the center and the leader of the book. Um, and that was great because I love the character. And I think they wanted Storm to be in there post Black Panther divorce, I think mm -hmm. had just immediately happened. Um, <clears throat> and I think they, they felt like maybe just like looking at the lineup, they were like, we need a place for Storm to really breathe. Um, and then uh, they were like, we'd really just love it if somebody could help out Bishop. Is there any way you could help Bishop? <laughs> uh, and he was bad at the time. And, and just, just to note, Bishop had been hunting an infant across multiple timelines and committing like yeah. genocides. It was, it was a bad time yeah. for our friend Bishop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stories were really great, but I think they were like, we, we want Bishop back. Like we, we want a good Bishop back, but he had felt pretty irredeemable at the time. Yeah. So I thought a good solution was to have him start off as the antagonist or to appear to be the antagonist. And then I really, you know, start immediately um, towards, uh, you know, redeeming him and making him a good guy again, which we knew was going to be a long journey. But I was like, we, we can at least give it a go. Um, and, a, and a lot of that ended up being like sort of this, um, you know, like reconstructed, like what don't we know about where he's been? What don't we know about what he's been doing? What don't we know about his motivations and all this kind of stuff? Um, so there was that. And then Puck, I just loved, he was a great wild card. He was kind of like a Wolverine surrogate almost, you know, like he added but more jokes, more jokes. But uh, he he added the same kind of like wild card aspect to the team. And then uh, there was Spiral, who I just felt had been an underused character. 
again, you know, early 90s, first half of the 90s, X-Men was like my sweet spot. So Spiral was like right there. Um, and uh, I love the boots. Spiral has the boots. I mean, come on. like <laughs> If you have not, uh, for anyone listening, if you have not heard Connor Goldsmith's Cerebro episode on Spiral, it is well worth the listen. It is so fun. Oh, I bet it is. I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's oh, wait. Actually... I think Spencer Ackerman heard it and said that I got like a, a bit of a shout out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some talk about your work with her, but yeah, we we get a lot of the boots with the fur, like <laughs> talking ah, about. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then you did uh you did some some really crazy stuff with the the Mumadry, uh, this secret kind of shadow right. world of people that Cassandra Nova, and then you wove in the demon bear. It was it was very surprising storytelling. Uh, in a space that I didn't think a lot of people would be bold enough to go, because those are hard concepts mm. to make work in your brain. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a shadow world. Like, what's happening? Uh, tell us a little bit about your decision for those uh, for those bows. I mean, I guess like you know, I felt like both of them had been like underused, or they were just concepts and slash characters that had just been sitting there. You know, like uh, the Mamadri was like you know, Cassandra Nova was this huge, like, impact character at the beginning of Grant Morrison's uh, new X-Men run. But they kind of explained away what her deal was. Like, Grant Morrison, I think, I think it was Grant Morrison was like, you know, the she's the Mamundri, or she's from the Shadow World. But it was like, everyone just kind of was like, oh, okay, like, I guess that's it. Like... <laughs> It was not very well explained or or explored, I should say. Like it made sense at the time, but nobody really like picked up that ball and ran with it. It was like, what does that really mean? How does that fit in? What is that experience like? How can it affect other characters? Like all that kind of stuff. Um, and also it was like, you know, Psylocke has really been through the ringer as a character as well. Um, in a lot of ways that we don't necessarily celebrate now. Um, but it was a way to kind of like explore that. Um, and then also with Demon Bear, I just loved the Demon Bear saga. You know, that was like, like kind of pre my era, but I, you know, starting from where I was reading, I went back and got all the back issues of everything and stuff. And Bill Sienkiewicz is, you know, an icon, a legend. Yeah, yeah. He is the moment of every moment in time. Uh, he's now. amazing. What's that? <laughs> No, I was just continuing the reference from Wendy. Yes, yes uh-huh. uh, so I could ask I, you. I could ask you twelve follow-up questions just based on what you said. But I, uh, I want to toss out. Uh, Steve Orlando is doing wonderful work with Cassandra Nova in the current Marauders title. I bet he is. I bet if you're not following, yeah. it's a blast. Uh, your choice to use Psylocke mm-hmm. and what you did with her, uh, and. God, it's too much to go into for today. But the character Phantom X had just been split into three and he had a female version. And your interpretation of Psylocke seemed to hint that she might be bisexual. Uh, And in the comics now, we have just in the last couple of months, uh, she is now in a relationship with Rachel Summers. So she is, Mm -hmm. uh, she's Mm -hmm. kissing girls now. So I I love that we got to see bisexual Betsy in your book, or at least hints of. Could you tell us a little about that? To me, it was a no-brainer. She was in love with Phantom X, and Phantom X got split into three, and one of them was female. And let's be real, hot? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, it did not seem, especially, like, you know, I I thought a lot, I mean, not a ton, but, like, just 
kind of thinking about like Psylocke's history and she was in the 80s in London. Like, are you telling me she never made out with a girl before? Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, there's absolutely <laughs> no way. Like, Duran Duran and New Orders playing in the background and she's not making out with some like art school chick. Like, no way. It just, it's absolutely not. Um, so to me, it seemed like, it seemed like a no brainer, but it also seemed like I, I didn't just want to have like some sort of like <laughs> two girls kissing each other. Like, so that's so hot kind of thing. I really wanted to bring it into the dimension of here's somebody that she loved is now in this completely incomprehensible situation where they're split into three. What does that do to you emotionally? Like you still have an attachment emotionally to these three beings, but they're all different now. And yet they're all the same. And yet they're all pieces of what you loved. And like, um, so to me, it it really, it, it was a story about, of like, of lost love and grief and trying to get back something that you had, which none of us, I presume, have ever been in love with somebody who got split into three. I presume that's never happened. I don't know this, but uh, please call in if this has happened. I desperately want to know about but I have I have certainly dated people who have different uh they're they're three beings in one like they're different people they're like one guy around their friends and one guy at work you know what I'm talking about <laughs> I get that I get that uh so I so I, I but but it, you know despite the circumstances it's still relatable to be like to long for somebody that you lost and she didn't really lose them but she lost them in a way and you know can it be good again can I be me in this situation like all that kind of stuff um, and, and also just like, you know, having a, a, a lost month in Paris with somebody you're trying to rekindle a romance with, um, you know, all, all this seemed, seemed very relatable to me, even if you don't go to Paris, you go anywhere. Um, so it, I, I am happy for my role in broadening uh, Psylocke's sexuality. But, you know, to me, there, there was a lot more of that than this sort of like frat boy, like kiss, kiss kind of thing. Yeah, you took I'm some just... rough stories, man. The redemption of Bishop, the, the, the crazy shit that happened to Phantom X and Psylocke, like the, the places you took the characters added to their mythos and built them for the next thing. It's, it's great work. And, oh, and Marvel's you. first polyamorous relationship. Kind of, yeah. Although, I'll, although if I'll, I'll let Marvel decide when to say that, but sure. If Phantom X is having <laughs> sex with himself, is it polyamory? <laughs> sure, or is it just masturbation? <laughs> if if that's the case, I would argue Jamie Madrox is Marvel's first polyamorous story. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh Sam, I think you're delightful. Uh what oh, a so what much. a treat to get to know you. I I, I want to talk to you about like Victor Mancha and about Peter Quill and about yeah. uh oh oh my god, fucking uh, uh Javelin, your use of the like there's so many questions I could ask you. I think you're fantastic. I did look it up, by the Thank way. You. So, so Spurrier did take over X-Force with Volume 4, which was after you. And it, it was Dennis Hopeless that wrote concurrently with you. So my apologies right. for, for the confusion for our listeners. Yeah, because when Dennis and I did a, a crossover at the end of our runs. Fantastic. Um, so did you set out for that entirely, Sam? Like, was that like the end of your arc? Or is that just kind of how, how it was? Uh... We never planned for it, but they were like, these books are ending. Why not go out with a bang? Give it a shot. We're like, sure, why not? 
Cool. I mean, the, the nice part was like, you know, I actually just went back and reread the X-Force thing and it did 17 issue or the, I guess, 16, maybe I forget where your first part did end, but like it felt yeah. cohesive. Like you told a good story arc of like right. the whole team. It was nice. Nice yeah. to, you know, get a I nice mean, run. Yeah. Thank you. And I, you know, I will say that like that Dennis and I are friends and, and we were friends back then too. So it wasn't completely out of the blue and we all knew from day one that like there were characters here with a lot of crossover, not just because they're X-Men, but Hope and Cable were on the other team and Bishop was slowly becoming a member of my team. And I, I th there was always, I think we had always kind of like vaguely talked, like at some point Cable's going to come after Bishop. Like at, at some point that's going to happen. Yeah. So it wasn't completely out of the blue. Uh, fantastic. This is, uh, this is so fun to uh, hear the method behind it all. We get to see how the sausage was made <laughs> once in a while, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, just as we'll have to just mention this quickly but uh sam has also worked on the uh the famous uh, contest of champions game which a lot of people love oh yeah much. uh so you may know sam from there as well uh but just for time's sake we'll have to transition sure. here into our uh our issue review so let's uh, talk turkey as it were <laughs> so sam thank you for uh for sharing all your insights uh let's jump to the cover of x-men 55 <laughs> for just a minute we have a barry windsor smith cover here uh yes i was shocked to have, discover this i had to look it up yeah it seems to have nothing to do with the issue inside there is a glowing giant who is that guy who's the green guy i think he's meant to perhaps be the energy version of the living i don't know what's happening here this is uh this cover does I, not I, I think this is a, a classic case of commissioning a cover before the pages have even begun or before the uh the the designs have been complete but uh gene's thigh gap is impressive is all i will say <laughs> gene i mean look at that pose like she's truly serving right there uh she she is she is watching her hem she, but she's like balancing in the boots uh it's fantastic i mean it, this is great because it doesn't even really like you wouldn't look at it and be like oh that's barry windsor smith the way that you would do for like most of his career he's got a very distinctive line but it's, it's like a dope cover. That's why I looked it up. I was like, oh, this rules. Like, who did this? I like his art style. I just don't like it when covers don't match the book. It's a personal pet peeve. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Uh, so before we even jump in, I want to talk for just a second about this character, Ahmed Abdul, uh, who is mm -hmm. the living pharaoh. This is not a character often used. A lot of people don't think about him very much. Uh, he's given the most character work in a weird place. It's Marvel graphic novel number 17. I'm not Which is go a personal favorite of mine. It's a great read, and it's James James I adore. Early Mark Silvestri, I think Dan Green was inking him too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's <clears throat> beautiful, and I will probably end up doing the trial of Ahmed Abdul someday on this podcast. But just to cover briefly, because we get a little backstory for where this guy comes from, and I'll and I'll cover this quickly. Uh, we learn that this guy is uh, is from Egypt, which is much better than a white guy calling himself the Living Pharaoh. So, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> thank God. Uh, <laughs> He, uh, he grew up kind of obsessed with pharaohs and gods. And as a child, he liked to pretend he was a descendant of the gods. He would call himself a god. Uh, kids would beat him up for that. He had a girl named Feline that he grew up with that was basically his only friend. They ended up marrying and uh, had a baby named Salome. Uh, Abdul uh, was super educated and uh, he was able to trace his genetic line back to the pharaohs which like only increased his like crazy theories. And in this book, we see him 
uh, very tragically one day. He's giving a lecture about how pharaohs had been able to draw upon cosmic powers, which is ironically kind of what his mutant power is. And the crowd is outraged and they're like chasing him out of town. And he jumps in his car with his wife and his baby and the car crashes and he and the baby are thrown free. But Feline is stuck in the car and everyone just stares and they refuse to help her. And Abdul is, uh, is you know, uh, 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 traumatized as he sees the car explode and his wife dies in it. So this is kind of the moment of madness. Uh, he sends his daughter off to a, a boarding school and we're going to later learn, if you read this issue we're referencing by J.M. DeMatteis, uh, in the future from this book we're reading in the X-Men right now, uh, he uh, he ends up sacrificing his daughter in a bid for power. Uh, he's this crazy archaeologist that's obsessed. And uh, we also learn it farther in the future when you get the 12 storyline that Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister have fucked with Ahmet's powers a little bit. They uh, They want him to be part of the 12. I'm not going to get into that today. But they have basically created a bond between him and Havoc. Both of them have the power to draw upon ambient cosmic radiation from the air. And uh, when he's able to block Havoc effectively, it increases uh, uh, Abdul's ability to draw more power. Uh, Havoc channels his into cosmic or plasma bursts. Uh, uh, Abdul channels his into like growing into crazy giant living monolith size. And eventually at one point he becomes the living planet and floats off into space. Uh, he's a super powerful character, um, but uh, any thoughts about, uh, it, sounds, Sam, Sam, it sounds like you were familiar with that backstory already, but any thoughts from any of you about uh, just adding a little depth or backstory to this character? No, not me. I mean, uh, I'll just say that the, the Revenge of the Living Monolith graphic novel from forever ago was an old favorite of mine when I was a kid, so uh, that's that's how I know him. It's a good book. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Anas, were you going to say anything? I was going to let Seth go first. Oh, I, I got nothing on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this is my first introduction to uh, Ahmed. And it's interesting to have uh, like a Middle Eastern, North African villain because those are not very common. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested to get to know more. And I was very intrigued by what you said about him because I, I could see Egyptians being very angered by blasphemous statements about the pharaohs uh the egyptians are very very you know strongly they have strong beliefs around those so yeah that makes sense kind of and this guy's not around a lot but he is around once in a while there's one point where he becomes juggernaut for a minute which is also crazy there's some crazy shit that happens. yeah it's at uh it's in the amazing x-men run uh we'll yeah we'll we'll get to him another time but uh the uh the drinking game for today is you take a shot every time they say the word infidel <laughs> uh sam do you want to take the first five pages uh tell us what happens and just some of your sure. thoughts about it. yeah uh well, well one thing that uh left out at me was uh I, I knew all the names in the credits box except for the letterer i didn't know who gene Izzo was gene Izzo. we we talked about her as well i'm in yeah, my last, I, oh, do you, you already talk about her? Because yeah, well, in our last out. in our last episode, we talked about her briefly. She's the daughter of Artie Simek, who's the famous letterer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As soon as I found out that Izzo was a pseudonym, or maybe the other way around, I was like, oh, I know, I know that name for sure. Um, so that was really cool to see and really cool to learn. Uh, I also just looking through her credits, I realized that she lettered The Impossible Man Summer Vacation from 1990, yes. which I had bought off the stand. Did you already talk about this? No. Because, 
I have that too. It, <laughs> yeah, I think I might still have it. Um, but it, I, I just was like looking through it, like the Marvel database or whatever, and I think it, it appears to be an anthology with multiple stories. But Janice Chang and Richard Starkings are also credited letters on the issues. They are both lettering icons. Uh, but there's also appears to be pre-image work from Greg Capullo drawing the impossible man, presumably. Uh, and then there's also a coloring credit for uh, Marie Javins, who, of course, is now the editor-in-chief of uh, DC Comics. I hate so. the impossible man. But for our X-Men listeners who don't know this character, he's basically what he is to the Fantastic Four, what Warlock is to the X-Men. He's like a living Looney Tune. Uh, I, I hate that character, actually. <laughs> well, then no summer fun for you. You're a summer bummer, Chad. <laughs> okay, so page one, like right away, like like Cyclops is confronting the living Pharaoh. They're in some sort of cavern or something. It might be a tunnel from the movie Tremors. We're not sure. Um, but I do love that, you know, right off the bat, it's always fun in a movie or a TV show and like a character says the title of the movie, like they say the title out loud. And I think that Scott Summers must agree because he's doing it right off the bat. He's like, I'm gonna say this title before any other character has a chance to. I wanna steal the spotlight. Um, but this is a, a, a great, I, I do love, um, I don't know if, it's, if it comes from Don Heck or, or Werner Roth, but the way he draws, they draw Cyclops, uh, I think is really cool. And I think you start to see that here. Like it's very dynamic, but it's also graceful. Like there's almost like a Hal Foster, like big uh, classic age of adventure comic strip vibes to him. Um, going to page two, you see it right away Sorry. in the second can I just, panel. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just highlight that Cyclops yells the living Pharaoh very bisexually because the color palette that they chose is two of the three he colors does. for bisexual flag. He does. <laughs> <laughs> He sees a man in a uh, skirt and he's stuff. so confused. <laughs> I, or, or maybe all the confusion has been resolved and now he knows what he really wants. Like that could be it as well. Um, so uh, page two, panel two. I, I really like this drawing of Cyclops. Like it's not even like a memorable one or, or especially like dramatic moment, but he just looks very graceful here, which I think is cool. Especially when you think about, you know, like Kirby's bombast and all that kind of stuff. I bet that there was a lot of like, you know, dying the wool Kirby fans who said, what the fuck is this? But I am here to appreciate it. Um, I do love the coloring in panel three. I think the coloring here is really good. Uh, it's very simplified, but has a lot of impact. We don't know who the colorist is. The internet doesn't even know. So I guess that knowledge never existed, but mystery colorist, I tip my hat to you. Um, pan panel four on this page is where I found myself speaking out loud to Scott because he says, I can't really risk hurting him, talking about the um, living Pharaoh, can't really risk hurting him because he may know where my brother is. And I started saying out loud, no, Scott, no, kill him immediately. Never find out where your brother is. Turn back away from this now because, I, and I love Havoc. I love Havoc as a character, but it's in Scott's best interest to never meet another Summers for the rest of his life. It is always a headache. I mean, like his dad and Alex and Vulcan, and then don't get me started on Madeline Pryor. I will never shut up. Marrying Gene and Gene takes his name. Cable, Hope. I mean, 
Rachel, like, imagine Scott's life if he never met met another Summers. It's a utopia. His this, his crops are thriving. His GPA is a four His skin is clear. <laughs> like there's. <laughs> so he should have really taken this moment and just fried the living pharaoh. Just it's like that meme where like, Earth's core. It's like that meme where society, if Scott never exactly, met. <laughs> exactly. This His will not happen. Life would be utopia. This will not happen on the podcast for a little while, but we host a monthly trial for a particular character, and and in about six weeks, uh-huh. we're, hosting, we're hosting the trial of Havoc, which means I just re- like reviewed his entire okay. publication history. And on my flight this morning, I was writing up the trial notes, and I used the phrase like "try hard." Like Alex is a try hard, <laughs> twelve <laughs> times in my trial notes. <laughs> he's I, I I really like Alex because he's like very. I guess he's not unique in this way, but he is conflicted about being an X-Man. And he, but he also like, when he leaves the X-Man, he's fine to just be like, I have a life. You fuckers keep hanging around this mansion, like die angry, like whatever. Like I'm fine. Like he, him and Polaris is going road trips or whatever. Um, so I, I, I like him a lot. And uh, he was great in sort of the, the Mark Silvestri era, uh, Australia era hmm, love it, love of it, X-Men. It. Yeah. If you ever, maybe you've already done it, but if you ever do a trial of Cyclops, I volunteer to be the prosecutor. And I will get him the death sentence. Electric chair. I'm going to invite you back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, bring it on. Bring it on. Okay. Page three. This is where I really started being like, okay, this is a 53-year-old comic, and they're making 53-year-old storytelling choices, which are mind-blowing to me. Like, just craft choices. Also, I did the math a little bit, and I was like, for a comic published in 2022, for that comic to be 53 years old, it would have to be the year 2075. Like, that is the distance that we have from this comic that we're reading today. Um, And this, this one, like, blew me away because there is barely a hint of an establishing shot on this page and there are three different locations like like that is the kind of storytelling you just do not see in comic books today probably for some very good reasons but i do think there are some things that you lose as well i mean i uh i had been writing for marvel for maybe as long as a year before uh, i learned from klaus jansen uh the legend himself that every page should have an establishing shot because it grounds the reader and where they are and where all the characters are in relation to each other. It doesn't always have to be the first panel. It helps sometimes if it is the first panel, but every page should have an establishing shot. And so every page I've written since I've thought about Kloss and I've thought about that tip. Uh, he saved my ass pretty much. The other thing is that you hear writers a lot talk about like only do scene breaks between pages. Like if you need to cut to another scene, you do that on a page turn. That is like dogma, accepted dogma among comic book creators. But I tend to think it is not a hard and fast rule. Like Katsuhiro Otomo in Akira, he like he breaks a scene wherever the fuck he wants. The Hernandez brothers, Los Bros Hernandez and Lemon Rockets, they break a scene wherever the fuck they want. And I said this on a panel before, and I think it was Colin Bunn because he's a real smart ass. Uh, he's a real Weisenheimer. He turned to me and he said, are you, are you Katsuhiro Otomo or Los Bros Hernandez? And I said, no, but I'll do whatever the fuck I want. If they're going to do it, then I'll do it. (laughs) 
So this page blew my mind. Also, like I said, we have three scenes. We have the cops. The cops, I, I, are they hot on the heels of Cyclops as a murderer? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, there's like a thing. It was like a bit plot in the last issue where Cyclops is accused of murdering the living Pharaoh, but he's still alive. And now they're okay. looking for him. It's it's kind of a throwaway quick plot. It was like a cliffhanger that didn't, yeah. didn't uh, really this, 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 this seems like a, an obligation panel. Like we are including this out of sense of obligation. Also, Chad, just for your note, none of these cops are Peter Quill, Star-Lord. Uh, moving on into the skies, we have the remaining four X-Men. And uh, it, it looks like, I don't, they did not have, the X-Men did not have the Blackbird yet. Um, Charles Xavier didn't have the budget quite, but but they have something that's very reminiscent of the Blackbird, uh, which is cool. And Gene is telepathically trying to track Scott that he's underneath New City. And also it's the city that never sleeps. And Chad might be down there hanging out with like, 20 to 60 people so there's a lot of mental interference going on um and then we cut back to underground this is all one page ladies and gentlemen one, one page where cyclops is simultaneously giving the living pharaoh a headlock but also flipping over him i mean uh this is incredible stuff uh Electra could never um then we're on to page four uh, i i really like these first three pages because they give you like the minimal amount of information to get the maximum amount of chaos of a fight scene, particularly like pa panel three. Like you don't know what end is up in that panel. Like where's the floor? Where's the ceiling? Is Scott descending from the ceiling? Is he like, like punching up from the, from the floor? Like you don't know, but you don't even really need to know because it's more about like, the vibe, the urgency, the intensity of the fight. And again, we have like a remarkably graceful Cyclops here. Um, and uh, oh, I, I did love in panel two, Cyclops from off panel uh, is calling the living Pharaoh friend. <laughs> They're in the middle of a knockdown drag out fight and he calls him friend. And I thought that maybe that was a reflection, you know, 1969, there was, you know, uh, it, it was the society was in an uproar society was in chaos and maybe that was a reflection of that that you could call somebody friend and have it be like really aggressive like have it be like almost kind of mean um so they fight and the living pharaoh has this moment where he's like my magical beams are having no effect maybe i'll just use this hunk of metal maybe i'll just clock him with a hunk of metal and it reminded me of like like uh gunfights face-offs in like Hong Kong movies where they both like run out of bullets and so they just start throwing guns at each other. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like last resort, but it works because he cathunks him. Uh, and then we cut back to, we're on, on page five now. Uh, this panel, this first panel here cracks me the fuck up because Gene Gray is like, I've lost contact. I don't even know what to think. Cyclops could be dead. She's like very emotional. And I say, I was like, then don't, lady. He's basically like, shut the fuck up, Gene. He's like, can it, god damn it. Like, I'm sick of hearing your blathering. Like, <laughs> they're supposed to be friends, but Iceman is just so aggressive here. And it occurred to me that he's possibly pre-salty because he got, like, this pre-cognitive flash that he's going to be one of the very, very few living X-Men who don't make an appearance in the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, he is straight up left out of that story. 
all the other original X-Men are in it. Even Banshee is there in the beginning. Like, it's just kind of like Iceman and Havoc and Polaris, who are like the only X-Men who are alive who don't show up. So I think I think Bobby is a little bitter. He's and, and really, um, they really iced him out. Oh! Waka, waka, waka. Speaking, speaking as a father, that was a proud dad joke moment for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the the X Men uh, are still searching, and and Gene is still befuddled. They kind of like let you know Iceman and his attitude. They let that slide. <laughs> That was even worse. That was even worse. Uh, and then we cut back yet another scene change, and um, they, the 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 minions of the living pharaoh are carrying off Cyclops, who's unconscious, and a sarcophagus that has Alex inside. Um, and the living pharaoh has a great line here. It says, "Whoso drops either of them answers to me," which is kind of like a an evil cousin of the inscription on Thor's hammer. Like whosoever <laughs> drops Cyclops shall possess the power of being dead by me. By my onk. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the next fan, the henchmen are like, why are we dragging this heavy weight around? Why don't we just kill these motherfuckers? And the next panel, the, the living Pharaoh, like he might as well be like looking at the reader when he says, don't question this plot hole. How dare you question me and this plot hole? Do not do such a thing. Just continue. We are cutting to perhaps hours later and miles away from here. We are just going to breeze right over that. Um, and again, this page, there are three scene transitions. There are seven panels. We are given the grace, the benefit of one establishing panel right there in the middle, which is kind of a beautiful panel, like the compositions and the colors, like it all comes together. But it's just fantastic. Don't give a fuck work going on here. We are barreling through the story and we are not going to pause for convention. <laughs> Seb, you're delightful. And for our listeners, <laughs> if you are displeased with any of the puns that preceded this statement, you can blame the Black Vortex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me send it over to Seth for uh, for the next five pages. God, it doesn't get worse. I mean, it doesn't get better. No, uh, it doesn't. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, they uh, they they drove to the airport at the very end of the last panel. Didn't look like they're going to an airport at all, but they do go to JFK, and they decide to check their mummy case, um, which I googled. I didn't know. I thought it was a sarcophagus. A mummy case is a real thing. I thought they just were were using using words I didn't, you know, just a, a, a cute way to say sarcophagus. But a mummy case you is just, actually you just thought they were being stylish. They were like, we're yeah, yeah. Be on theme with this case. Yeah, it's just just their their fancy Louis Vuitton uh, '60s mummy case, but no, it's a uh, it's a real thing, and uh, I guess the sarcophagus is stone from Wikipedia, and I had to stop reading because I had to keep reading this, uh, so I stopped down my Wikipedia hole. And uh, let's see, the ticket agent was very progressive that he's excited that the museum piece is going back to its home country. I thought for the '60s that was a real crazy comment, and uh, they've all switched to suits and a fez very quickly in their cars. And um, also I Googled because I didn't think green fezes were a thing, but I guess it's not what an Egyptian would wear at the time, but that's also just a coloring thing from the sixties. And uh, so they get on the plane. I, they, they load, I guess everybody at JFK loads up all their stuff and I'm assuming a private plane, they all pop on board. 
And uh, I just love that Scott has just been in a little cube box in the living room. Pharaoh just tosses him <laughs> out. <laughs> he must have been so uncomfortable, but, you know, he's got to make it a terrible, terrible death, but it's going to draw it out for as long as possible. And, like, this part just, good God, like, the narration of everything that Scott does, he tells you every move for the next four pages that uh, happens. Scott tells you out loud what is going on, I guess, because he can't see, but also the reader gets no real good art on these pages for what's happening on the panel. So Scott is going to narrate. The reader every can little barely thing. see as well. Like oh, Lord, the dude. reader barely has more of an idea than Scott does. You know, like I've gotten editor fee like feedback before where they're like, you know, I need a little bit more, you know, show don't tell. And uh, I'm like, Oh gosh, like if ever like you're going to go back and give an example to to a writer or an artist and be like, this is this is exactly what we mean here, because there is no showing happening here. Just all all telling. Yeah. So on the next page, uh, Scott uh, tries to get the dirt from Living Farrell and where they're going and why. But he doesn't do his big super villain moment yet. He tells him he's got to wait and disappears. And Scott just knows he's gone because he can't see. He just assumes that there's quietness now. So he moves somewhere else in the plane. I don't know. It's just a plane. So then uh, Scott figures out that Alex is stuck in the sarcophagus somehow just because he can faintly hear Alex whining. And, oh, sorry, in the mummy case. <laughs> he can faintly hear. He's locked inside a mummy case. Funny, I was always glad he developed no true mutant powers, no foreshadowing at all. But it didn't stop. <laughs> But that didn't stop him from falling victim to the schemes of a man. Well, and we'll just remind you in the previous issue, Scott introduces the X-Men to his brother, Alex. And they're like, you've never mentioned that you had a brother before. Like that, that's canon. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Did he say like, Alex, my brother, who's not a mutant 10 times in the last issue? Because that uh, <laughs> would... <laughs> so then we go back to... Uh, uh, an, well, like there's a nice shot out of the airplane, but I love that Gene is off panel talking to the airplane uh, from a small chat does that little mini quinjet have a name at this point in the comments i don't know where this ship comes from so xavier's dead they don't have access to his planes usually he uses copters there was a recent issue where they borrowed a plane from the avengers it's possible angel spent his weekly allowance on this ship i, mm. I don't know where it comes from i don't know what the <clears> ship is i mean the ship doesn't last it gets wrecked on the next page but i was curious but it's, it's also changed shape since earlier in the book it's now a little bit wider uh, wider this wings page eight is the stupidest fucking part of this story i thought it was so unnecessary anyway proceed oh sorry uh gene just her telepathy is back because uh she couldn't read his mind because he was unconscious so we go to the next page she's stoked because scott is not dead um well yeah the next part i'm assuming so they they zoom up next to the jet the private jet private plane that the living pharaoh's in and <laughs> It must be at the lowest altitude possible because he can <laughs> lean right out the plane without getting sucked out. <laughs> he just he just sticks his little head out and his bed stays on too, which is fucking phenomenal. It's just right on his head and going nowhere. And, uh, and that that bed must be made out of the same material as Scott's like little hood that he can't take oh, yeah. off. Like it's just it's just gripping on tight. And God bless Roy Thomas, but he does not know how a plane works. <laughs> no, no, I don't think. I mean, clearly nobody does in this book or the X-Men because I would just be waiting for him to get sucked out and be like, cool, just pull back and we'll be yeah. done with this whole problem. Uh, so he leans out and he bathes them with some kind of ray, which is just ridiculous description again. And like the rays, like they just do weird things. They look like little sparkly zaps that just don't do anything. So they try to, the X-Men try to pull their little 
uh, Avengers stolen jet, maybe out back out of the way. <laughs> and I, the whole time Hank's been driving it with the joystick. So he pulled back too hard on the joystick and broke it right off, which he was a fucks real, it up again. <laughs> yeah. What a dick move. <laughs> so, uh, the, they released a canopy again. I don't know why that was like something that they would do if they crash. I think it'd be safer with the canopy up, but, uh, Iceman puts ice wings on, which I would think also would just, again, make it heavier for falling. I hate it. And then because now there's like added weight of it, it's less aerodynamic because it's open. Angel can still slow it down. One little man with his hollow bones keeps him from all dying. (laughs) I kind of love how like, you know, Beast, he uses big words, but like they all their thing. And... Iceman is like, I'll make wings with my ice. And Angel is like, fuck you. Wings are my thing. <laughs> I, I have one thing to distinguish. My, we all have one thing. Don't try and take two. Well, sure and in the last issue, announce. in the last issue, a spear got thrown and it went through Angel's wing. And he's like, oh no, my wing. It's like they thought that it was like, like uh, I don't know, some, like it just passes through the feathers and it's fine. It's it's ridiculous. The, there's there's some major problems in the storytelling of these last few issues. The wing is one hundred percent feathers. Yes. Yeah. I hate this page. I hate it. <laughs> Physi- yeah, physics, physics and biology are don't exist in this world at this point. But although I gotta um, say, like in the fir- I forget what issue, but in the first ten issues of X Men, there's a page where they're on a or there's an issue where they're on a ship and the ship gets blown up, like it's catastrophic. And they're all like, oh, no. And then, like, the next panel, Professor X is on his wheelchair and just, like, perfectly sitting on, like, a plank of wood, which, <laughs> like, like, so improbable. And all the other X are, like, swimming. But, you know, um, it's a miracle. Professor X landed perfectly on a plank of wood. So this is actually an improvement over that, this, like, landing at sea. Well, and just pre-noting, how did the X-Men get to Egypt from here if their fucking plane is broken? Which is a problem we'll have in a second. But I didn't even think about that. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, like I know this is like a little silly thing, but the fact that like the lettering choice too, where like Iceman's like, we made it. But Gene's screaming, we've got to, because Scott might, you know, never be seen again. It's like, (laughs) like, like letterers, like, come on, script priorities here. (sighs) Yeah. So we change scenes to Egypt, and there's a actually like the pyramid shot that's kind of cool, a little fun and crooked, and again, yeah. uh, weird lettering parodies of "No one shall ever see us here." No one. I'm like, cool, dude. I mean, get it. But <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, uh, yeah. He, we switch location, pyramid of Egypt. Um, Living Frau, he finally reveals his plans because he couldn't do it on the plane, but inside the pyramid, it was much more important to do. He is going to give them a death that befit a mutant born, um, which is nice of him, I guess. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm clear if he's trying to tell Alex, uh, sorry, tell, uh, tell Scott that Alex is a mutant, but he doesn't know it, right? He doesn't know that Alex is a mutant. So he should so, just yeah. kill He should have just killed alex a long time ago this is- i mean we're gonna we're gonna learn next issue he's trying to kill alex so that he can get the full extent of his powers somehow he knows that oh, if, he kills, okay. if he kills this mutant he's gonna uh, uh, the living pharaoh will get all of his power that's not really explicitly explained here but that's his goal sorry i'm just impatient then i should have been yeah, it's just- <laughs> <I got> it. <laughs> so 
Yeah, like he just taps it like a random hieroglyph, and the super badass weird uh, earring cat just starts vomiting everywhere. <laughs> Very reminiscent of my own cat. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. yeah, that's what they're good at, you know. Apparently, from you know statues of all time, they just they uh, honor their cats. Egyptians which is like This is actually the equivalent of an Egyptian meme about cats barfing a lot. They're like, cats be doing it. <laughs> yeah, and again, like, why did he do this? Like, he's gonna kill them later with their their big ceremony, but he's gonna just like mildly just get them wet and make things seem really bad for a minute. Like, what's what's the whole point of the the cat vomit? Scene? I mean, he says he's trying to give them some sort of honorable death. Let's drown them instead of kill them humanely. I don't know. It's very sixties Batman, right? Like they. Oh, they he's the doing that was that was the death scene. I thought he was gonna save it for later. Sorry. He's trying to kill him, so he sets the trap and then leaves the room so they have a chance to escape. Next, 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 uh, next episode, same bat time, same bat channel. This is King Tut mm-hmm. from the 60s Batman cartoon, played by a gay icon. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh my god, you're so right. <laughs> so I, I the matching henchmen. Yeah, oh, it yeah. really it's they the same. Great. Was this the same? Have you seen like the time arrow? Like Chad, is it like exactly oh, yeah, the same time too? Yeah, I would I would say King King Tut predates this guy, but I'll double check as you're finishing up. No, I mean this is sense. contemporary with the Batman TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was on at the same 69? time. Yeah, yeah, King Tut King King Tut debuted in 1966. This is 69. Oh, Rastly Roy Thomas, what are you doing? What are you doing? He was on a tight deadline. Look, I I know how that feels. I get it. <laughs> how do uh, yeah, so, how do how do Cyclops and, and Alex get out of their trap? Oh shit! Um, by just banging his head against the mummy case. Well, the cat vomit's disappeared. I don't know. <laughs> there's no more water. There's no more room. I mean, there's just no backgrounds here. Just a lot of color changes. Scott narrates the entire thing that so uh, he remembers that he heard the mummy case being set down. He tells us all because we don't see him looking. He's got to tell us. Uh, he also tells us that he suspected the top was loose the whole time. So Alex wouldn't have smothered to death again. I mean, who knew? Um, I mean, he God, geez, there's just so many things he could have said, but he just says the dumbest shit here. And uh, the hood it takes the brunt of his blows. What is the hood made of? He also gets Alex to take the hood off off panel, which <laughs> there's just like so many things here where like they're just uh, ah, so lazy. Yeah. You missed the the best line on this page where uh, Scott, uh, while he's smashing the sarcophagus, says, "It's giving." <laughs> it's giving Batman the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> giving a lot more than this page deserves. Shit. <laughs> so yeah, he makes a bad Excedrin joke. Um, and then they one minute later, like he gets that hood off quick and they get outside. I like I would have expected they were like in catacombs. It would have been really difficult to find their way out of a pyramid, but they just get right outside and just start punching right away. Punching from off panel, just like one fist, and that's it. Yeah. Um with his little brother cheering him on. Uh oh, infidels, he got a drink. And yep. uh yep. so, infidels, uh, there's a lot of that in this, yeah. Yeah, only cool part about this page is that purple, like that purple highlight on his face, like oh, yeah. the shadow purple with the white mm-hmm. and the pink tongues and gums. Like that's like that's pretty badass. I'm I'm really into those panels. Yeah, he looks he looks vaguely Jokerified. He uh, the the color scheme's not too far off. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, so yeah, he's pretty upset because they turned down the royal death. So he's just got to murder them now. Like he, it's their fault. So even though got to die. Even though he was already murdering them. Uh, and I'll take us through the last five pages. Will do. 
So uh, we are now outside in the desert where uh, Cyclops and Alex are fighting together and Alex is serving Kurt Couture. Um, (laughs) It's a a big panel where there's like just punching and bangs all over. Um, This is a great panel. It is of a great all the panel. trash very I was talking dynamic. about the establishing shots. This is a great establishing shot. Yeah. <laughs> and the sky is blue for once for this entire issue. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the living pharaoh uh, arrives to the scene and he begin, begins to threaten them and wants to send them to their ancestors. But suddenly he is lifted into this very sky and it's which is impossible and he can't move. And it's, uh, at this point, it is it, re- it is revealed that Angel has lifted him. And he says, you hit the nail on the head, chum. Uh, and then he, th- <laughs> <laughs> he he warps him around and he just flips him all around. And he lands on the very top of the pyramid and he just leaves him there. One of the and many reasons... Then- one of the many reasons you should never wear a cape into combat. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and then Angel notes that he came on pretty cocky back there, but he's fine with it. <laughs> uh, after which, they are, the, the rest of the X-Men arrive on the scene inexplicably, inexplicably because their ship somehow is fixed and they are emerging from their ship. Uh, Iceman immediately starts freezing the Pharaoh's cultists, and Scott is very happy to see them. He says here something that really caught me off guard, which is saying that his optic blasts were getting weaker by the second, which I did not think was actually possible, but apparently it is. I guess mm. there's a there's a meter for this for the battery. Huh. I think that can happen if he's out of the sun for too long. Like he he recharges with solar energy, right? So if he's underground for too long, I think that could happen. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah. Iceman keeps freezing them. He calls Beast Baby for some reason, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and here Beast gets really like a good highlight. Where he's just like smashing and stepping on all these cultists and, you know, smashing their heads in the in the ground. Uh, finally, they, they, noticed, they noticed that Alex is really handling himself quite well. And then Alex notices that the Pharaoh is on top of the pyramid and he's using his, is about to use his wand. At which point, Alex suddenly, um, you know, does something, and the the, the Dude, weapon is shattered. By Do anything, of... Alex. Anything, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Do one thing, Alex. Yeah. So waves of stinging force uh, shatter the the ankh, and Alex is just as uh, you know shocked to see this, and he blasts him off the pyramid. Uh, Angel swoops in rescues him from crashing to his death, at which point the Pharaoh instructs all his cultists to run, and they do so very willingly. And this is when it's revealed that Alex is a mutant. Uh, and he looks great in his little skirt. I'm, Alex should be shirtless all the time. I said he's serving couture. Yeah. The yeah. last two pages are like, the, this the whole book, the pacing, like the panel pacing is just insanity. Like the big yeah. reveal of him shooting, like shooting the honk is just—he just looks confused. Like, what? <laughs> and I mean, I I love it. It's just—it's just like very like. Uh, I I heard a football player describe his play recently, where he's just like, "I'm fast and I'm physical," and I was like, "That's what this book is. It's just fast, <laughs> just barreling ahead, not stopping to ask any questions, and it's just physical. Like we're gonna throw you right into this action." 
<laughs> the image of Beast's foot on page 13, it looks like he took some pim pills, like some pim particles. His foot's like a fucking giant, like larger than this man's head as he stomps on him. Um, <laughs> yeah. I hate it. God, there's some things about this issue I despise. Uh, I do like some of the pacing where it takes the story. And this carries into the next issue, which is Neil Adams' first pencils. So uh, right. Neil Adams joins in the middle of this crazy story. We learn more about how... Well, thanks for having me about... on one issue before Neil Adams comes aboard <laughs> and things get exciting. Oh, give Shumfries the shit one. The guy that where they go to Egypt and no one knows how to get there. Yeah, let Sam handle that one. Most of the issues are uh, at least somewhat based in shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to cover the last five pages just very quickly. Uh, this is still in the middle of the origin stories, which are almost done. So this is the second part of the Angel uh, prequel. It's called Where Angels Dare to Tread by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth. Sam Granger did inks and letters. Stan Lee is on the edits. Uh, last time we saw Angel growing up as kind of a rich kid, sent off to boarding school. He grew some wings, uh, saved some kids from a fire. Uh, now we get to see Angel in his own Avengers uh, adventures. He's calling himself the Avenging Angel. We're going to learn in a couple pages here. He has rented himself an apartment, designed himself a costume, uh, which is kind of a great costume actually it's like a it's red okay. red with black inlay there's a there's a, a yellow halo on the chest yellow briefs uh, and like a little it's gun not bad i actually kind of like it it's not bad it's it's reminiscent of like his defenders era red and white uh costume which i is one of my favorites on him well and we get the we get the halo back on the chest in future costumes uh which is a callback mm -hmm. to here so this is technically <clears throat> his original costume uh, he has also designed, do not try this at home, kids. He has designed his own gas gun. And we learn in his own little apartment, he's filling ping pong balls full of gas, which he can then fire out of a gun to shoot at villains, which, you know, this guy needs some upgrades. All he does is fly, but this is a problem. And we're going we're gonna to see why. So Angel is swooping in on some criminals who are, uh, they're, we, we, they're called the Grady Gang. They're robbing a warehouse. Uh, he shoots some gas and knocks them out and then lines them up against the wall and paints a symbol on with like a halo surrounded by slash marks. And the police are like, what is this? And he's so disappointed that they don't know what the fuck this symbol means. Because who would? Like, what? I don't know. He's trying to be Spider-Man here and it didn't work very well. Uh, mm -hmm. we, get to, we get a quick cutaway to the X-Men. Professor X has Bobby and Scott and he's like, there might be an angel. And I always love when Charles Xavier uh, lectures on ethics. They're like, do you think he's a good or an evil mutant? And he says, oh, yeah, he says, here's quote. It's impossible to say we do not live in a world of lucid blacks and whites, Bobby, but a cosmos of endlessly shifting grays. He's just justifying his own existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Justifying all his actions. And then also he goes right now, whether that mutant he's, he's like, he's like, there's no good and evil, except like in a few short months when we're literally going to fight the brotherhood of evil mutants and we're going to have no problem calling them that. I mean, the implication here is if he joins our side, he's good. And if he's not, he's evil. If he does what I say, exactly. he's good. Anything else is uh, is not. Uh, I, I also love this, this perfect, like, like very like typical Professor X moment where uh, Cyclops and Iceman are talking amongst themselves and Professor X is like, I just overheard you with my telepathic powers where I read your mind all the time, constantly reading your thoughts. And Scott and Bobby are like, yeah, okay, we're just going to move on talk about the angel. Also, when Professor X says uh, there's a cosmos of endlessly, endlessly shifting grays, he's just lusting after Jean, who's still at home as a teenager. Uh, uh, he knows her. He knows her well. 
Oh, oh Charles. Uh, we, we go back to Angel, who's trying to fight some more criminals who are uh, robbing an atomic plant. One of them, there's a stray bullet that knocks the gas gun out of his hand. So he has to zoom down to grab it. Uh, he inhales some atomic gas of some kind. And we'll learn next issue, it's released his dark side. So technically, canonically, I think this is the first appearance of Archangel, where we get to see this like darker nature of him. We've also reviewed on the mm-hmm. podcast an early story from 1963 when Angel teams up with Iceman. He, uh, an atomic bomb goes off and Angel's like, I'm evil now for like half an issue. And then they, you know, he's back. So uh, more evidence of Angel's dark side. When he goes back home, Iceman and, and uh, Cyclops are waiting inside and and he's like, fucking- Breaking and entering. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's okay because there's uh, there's no blacks and whites, Sam. There's only a cosmos of- That's and- right. And grays. Uh, Endlessly so, shifting grays and Iceman's pirate boots. That's all there is. <laughs> uh, so if you guys have any thoughts on the Angel backup, I'd love to hear them. Uh, but we'll continue with that next issue. And we're almost done with the X-Men backups uh, pretty quickly here. They're they're finished. And uh, the last year of the title uh, just kind of has 20-page stories again. Uh, any thoughts from uh, from any of you on the Angel backup? Uh, I, mean, I, I just thought, I thought you really... hit the nail. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Let's go Sam uh, and then us. Uh, I, I thought you hit the nail on the head with like this is they're really trying to give him Spider-Man vibes, except he's rich, which is like <laughs> a core part of what Spider-Man is not. So uh, uh, it doesn't quite work. I also love that he like invented his own gas gun. I don't think inventing is really like one of like uh, Warren's core traits. But, you know, this is in the 60s. If this took place today he wouldn't be a superhero, you know, with his inventions of the gas gun and so forth. He'd be like a vape entrepreneur. He'd be one of those really (laughs) annoying guys. Come to Worthington Industries and buy your own ping pong balls filled with gas. Selling crypto and (laughs) NFTs. And also, what were you going to say? I said he was probably going to be shilling crypto and NFTs. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was. I wanted to say that uh, I, I love that he was just like tagging this to the wall and it didn't really pay off. And Stanley in the edits noticed, noted that actually Angel came up with the Avenging title. Like this was pre-Avengers. So I guess canonically the X-Men invented the name Avengers. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, next issue, we're going to get the living monolith. We're going to get Havoc really starting to struggle. And frankly, he's never come out of that struggle <laughs> in 50 years. Uh, but this was a lot of fun to talk about this issue. I hope you all had a blast with me. I know we ran a little long, so thank you, everybody, for your patience. But uh, uh, Anas and Seth, I always love hanging out with you. Sam, what a delight to uh, to just thank you. Thank you for having me, all of you. I had a blast. This is a great time. As we are wrapping up, uh, recognizing this episode will come out on September 9th. Uh, let us know where we can find each of you online. And are you able to plug anything that might be uh, coming out next? Uh, Gray Malkin Lane, uh, our next episode, we're going to be picking up the next issue uh, with uh, uh, kind of an all-star team. We've got Renee Winterstater coming on as our featured guest. And then the artists, uh, Bob Quinn and Matt Horak, are both coming back. Uh, and right after that, we've got Luciano Vecchio. And the episode after that, we've got Tom Brevoort. So we've got some really incredible things coming your way. Very uh, on cool. The oh, very shortly. Tom's going to school your ass. Like every panel, he's going to be, look at that glove. Now, here's the thing about that glove. That guy knows his shit. When I worked for the handbooks, uh, Tom was my boss, but I've never met him. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited. Uh, and we've also got some really fun stuff coming up on the Patreon. Right around the time of this issue, uh, we'll be releasing the Patreon episode uh, about Unicorn right after this. 
Uh, excuse me, that's with Daryl Lawrence. Right after that, we'll have the Patreon episode all about Sidorak, the demon that powers the juggernaut with Hussein Rashid, who's another person I got to hang out with in New York, and it was so fun. <laughs> so uh, let me turn it over. We'll go in the same order. Uh, uh, where can we find you online? What's coming up for you? We'll go uh, Sam and Austin and Seth. All right, cool. Uh, you can find me online. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the same handle. That's at Sam Humphreys, spelled exactly like my name. No tricks, but also no creativity whatsoever. Um, <laughs> and then in terms of things to plug, God, I got so much in the works, but very little that's been announced. Um, the, the one thing that has been announced is uh, I have uh, me and Cami Garcia and Gwen Bond. We sold a three book deal with Audible uh, for a book series called The Young Bloods. It's like succession, but with demons. We don't have a release date yet, but it's going amazing um sometime next year it'll be coming out wonderful uh anas next um you can find me on twitter and instagram at ns underscore abdulhuk also no creativity same as my name uh as for plugging stuff i don't i can't, I can't really speak much on this but uh i just this just this week i signed a contract to publish my hey! comic book etheris congratulations uh, thank you uh, should be coming out sometime next year, uh, illustrated by Dennis Men here and edited by uh, Michelle Abinader from Extra Pages Press. I'm extremely excited about this. It's going to be my first officially published work, and I hope that I can speak more to it on the months to come. And uh, finally, Seth? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, at SC Martel. Um, I have a, a graphic novel that I wrote and drew coming out uh, through Penn State Press, and it's going to be under their graphic novel imprint, Graphic Mundi, that will be out next spring. So I don't think it will be up for pre-order until the winter time of this year, but I can still plug it now. Very and, cool. Uh, thank you. I'm stoked. Yeah. And you also, uh, anybody can buy a Grey Malkin Lane t-shirt on TeePublic. Uh, Seth has been designing some really fantastic t-shirts. Uh, we just put up a Princess Python design, which I am in love with and just ordered myself. Uh, the Polaris shirt is up as well. It's great. So go check it out if you haven't. Uh, all of you, thank you for your time and talents this afternoon. I had a blast. and uh, My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we will uh, we will see you back here uh, next time on Grey Malkin Lane. And maybe you'll see Sam back here on the Trial of Havoc uh, sometime in the future. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Trial of Cyclops. You better. Trial of Cyclops. You better have me back. <laughs> All right, everybody, we'll see you back here next time. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grey Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane.